Let me pray. We'll walk into God's word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that it is life for us. Um, Lord, we thank you that you're a God who reveals himself to us, that we might know you, that we might know you through the word himself, that we might know you through um, what you've said to us, that we, it might inform the way that we live, and it might inform the way that we um, worship you and know you today. So Lord, we pray for our time in your word that it would encourage us and that it would challenge us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the doctor, a preacher, and a lawyer head to the hospital. Got to be a good story. Had a mutual friend that had called him to the hospital because he was on his deathbed. And he had a few things, a few requests for these three men at his funeral. And so show up in the room and the guy says, look, I know uh, that you supposedly can't take it with you when you go, but I, I've got 30 grand to my name and I'm going to take it with me when I go, but I need your help to do it. So here's what I need you to do, man. At my funeral, at the very end of the funeral, when people come by and the casket is open, I need you, doctor, to take 10 grand, and you, pastor, to take 10 grand, and you, lawyer, to take 10 grand, and he hands them this money. I need you, right before they close that casket, to put that money in my casket, because I'm taking it with me when I go. A few weeks later, the man dies, and funeral happens, and to the funeral, the guys come up, drop something, all three of them drop something into the casket. After the funeral, those three men go to coffee just to chat about their friend, and they begin to talk, and the doctor can't handle it anymore. The doctor confesses, and he says, man, I can't deal with this anymore. This guy was a patient of mine, and over the years, he was a friend of mine, but he had $2,000 in unpaid bills. And so I dropped eight grand into the casket, but I took two. I think he'll be fine. The preacher then decided, notice the preacher was second. The preacher decided at that point to confess as well. He's like, yeah, I got to confess as well. Man, this guy was a guy in my church. He was a member of my church, and he had promised over the years to give to the building renovation fund of the church, and he never did. And so I took three grand, and I put seven grand in when I went by the casket. And then the lawyer comes up. The lawyer always gets a bat in the stick. You know how this is going. The lawyer comes up, and he just confessed. He said, look, I kept the 10 grand. Not only did I keep the 10 grand, I made sure I was last before the casket got closed, and I reached into the casket, and doctor, I got your eight grand, and preacher, I got your seven grand, but you know what I left? I wrote him a check for 30 grand, and then we closed the casket. <laughs> the love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. Whether you're the guy that's trying to hoard money even when you pass, as if you can use it when you go, or whether you're the friend after a funeral who takes somebody else's money. The love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of relationship do you have with money and wealth and possessions and things? Do you have your wealth or does your wealth have you have you ever experienced the incredible freedom and joy of being generous with, with what God has given you not only to bless others but to have a real return on your investment 
This morning, we talk about generous wealth. And you're like, man, guy's going on sabbatical. He's going to talk about money. Generous wealth. We've been in this series for about five weeks on generosity, all the different currencies that the Bible talks about as it relates to generosity. And this morning, we look at wealth. We've looked at hospitality and opening up our life and our home and resources to other people. We've looked at service and how we give back to others. We've looked at relationships and how we ought to be generous with our relationships. But all those currencies that we talk about point to a God who has been generous. A God who owns all things, everything's his, and yet he has lavishly been gracious to you and to me with his mercy and his grace. That he's not a God who holds things in his own hands and keeps things and is stingy, but he's a God who is generous and he calls his people to be generous as well. And I've been saying all the way through this series almost every week, I know when you think of generosity, you think about money and you think about wealth. But there are more currencies than that. But guess what? There is the currency of the, our possessions and our wealth and our money that can be a rich blessing to the kingdom of God. Luke 18. Turn there with me. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, maybe a familiar passage to you. This passage is in the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark and here and Luke. This is the rich young ruler. We're going to look at the rich young ruler this morning. Page 877 if you need a Bible or Bible next to you. And what we're going to see, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see the danger, first of all, of wealth. The danger of wealth. And then we're going to see the incredible freedom of generosity if we can see our stuff in the right vein, and then we're going to see the return on investment. And what you're going to notice is that Jesus have, has a different way of doing math than we do. So Luke 18, 18 through 30. Let me read it. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, this is a test, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was, look at this note from Luke, extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And look at the picture, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. For those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive, look at it, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's look at the danger first of wealth with this rich young ruler. See, the book of Matthew says he's young. The book of Mark reminds us that he 
comes and bows before Jesus. You don't see it here. But before we get into that, I want you to understand something. In the nation of Israel, if you think about Old Covenant, what was the sign of the spiritual? Often the sign in the Old Covenant, not the New Covenant, in the Old Testament, the sign of the one who was spiritual, who had close relationship with God. Think about Abraham. God blessed them in a material way. So it would have been inconceivable to a first century Jew what Jesus is saying here. When he says it's impossible how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, we get that, but for, to a first century Jew, they would have been confused. This is why Peter's kind of scratching his head, because they saw material blessing as a sign that God, of God's favor. And so Jesus, this is a radical hard statement that you see, and it's likely with this rich young ruler, we learn from Matthew as well as Mark in the bigger context that this guy was not only wealthy, but he was a religious leader. He was probably training to be a Pharisee. And so he was wealthy and he was religious. But look at what happens. Look at this exchange. He says to Jesus, good teacher. Some people, if you read commentaries, some people look at that and they say, okay, he's just trying to flatter Jesus. If you kind of read it, you kind of, is he just trying to flatter him? He bows before him. He calls him a good teacher. But, but nobody in that day said to a rabbi that they were good because only God was good. That's why Jesus says what he does. And so I think this is actually likely an acknowledgement from this rich young ruler that he understands who Jesus is. He understands that Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus, it seems odd, but look at it. He said, and why do you call me good? I think Jesus wants him to draw out why he thinks he's good. No one is good except for God alone. So I think he's drawing out, hey, are you saying that I am God? But here's the right question. I think this question that he asks is, A, it's really important, and it's very sincere. When he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think it's a sincere question. It's kind of like Nicodemus coming to him in the night and asking him this similar question. I think it's sincere, but it's a little off. It's a little off because he says, what do I have to do? See, when you have a lot, you can often take care of your needs with your money. When you're religious, you believe, right or wrong, you believe that you can figure it out on your own, that your good works can help you attain even eternal life. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus goes somewhere. Where does he go? He goes to the commandments. Do you see it there? And he gives them the relational commandments. You know the Ten Commandments? He gives number five through nine. These, this is called the second table of commandments. Notice he leaves out one through four and five because those aren't relational commands. They're directed at God, right? And so he says, don't murder, don't do all this. And this guy says what? What's his answer? I've done that. I've done that my whole life. And this is where we go from sincerity to maybe an off question to some arrogance, right? And so look at how Jesus handles this. I want, to, I want you to understand what he's saying and not saying. It's kind of important. Jesus said this. He said, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor. Can you sell all, you, all your things and have eternal life? Is that how salvation works? Is that how the gospel works? It's not. What is he doing? He's trying 
to get this guy, this rich, young, religious ruler to understand his own need. You ever do that with your kids when they've done something wrong rather than just saying, you did it wrong and here's your heart issue, you ask questions. You ever do that as a parent? What are you doing when you ask questions? You're trying to get your child to understand your own heart problem. I think that's what Jesus is doing in this text. I don't think he's saying, sell your possessions and then you're gonna be in heaven. He's trying to reveal for this rich young ruler so he understands his own heart condition. And that's exactly what happens. You see it here, look at it. You will have treasure and follow me. Look, 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. See, he knew his need. He knew that his wealth, maybe like Solomon, it wasn't enough. There was still something missing. He was sad even though he had it all. For he was extremely rich. And then Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. That's a radical statement. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Commentators do all kinds of weird things with this thing, with the camel and the needle. They say, well, there's a gate and the camels had to take everything off to get through this gate in Jerusalem, so it's possible. And that's not Jesus' point at all, I don't think. Jesus actually is, tells us, he interprets for us the situation. It's impossible. There's no way, whether rich or poor, you can enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no way you can attain by doing eternal life. He explains it. It's absolutely impossible. Think about that image, a camel through the eye of a needle. Here's your thought. Your thought in verses 18 through 27 here is this, hoarding our wealth can bind and blind us from our greatest spiritual need. Hoarding our wealth can bind us. You see it with this rich young ruler, that he's bound by it, that he's in bondage to all these possessions and all the things that he can't give up, and he's blind to his need. One guy said it this way, nothing reinforces the illusion of self-reliance the way money does. You catch that? Nothing reinforces the illusion of our own self-reliance the way money does. What can I do? How can I pay for it? I can't. And here's the thing. When you take something like wealth, and there's inherent danger, and there's inherent good that can come from wealth. These are heart issues, right? When you take something, though, like wealth, and you also take a religiosity that says, I can do it, it creates this alloy that's almost, it's impenetrable. How do you get steel? Anybody know? Where's Ryan Snell? He does this. There's a metal, you take elements. You take a metallic element of iron and you take a non-metallic element of carbon and you put it together and what do you get? You get steel. And this is the way wealth and religiosity work together in all the wrong ways that blind our soul to our greatest need of a savior. Yesterday, I was, uh, I was outside and we were mowing the grass, William was mowing the grass, and the grass is growing thick these days. And uh, having trouble 
mowing the grass, the blade was bad, so I went to Home Depot, got a new blade, and I turned the lawnmower over, took the old blade off, putting the new blade on, and I had my wrench, and I was putting a lot of weight on it, and it slipped, and I'm hard-headed, y'all, but that steel or whatever alloy was that caught me right here, which you can see because the lights are on, I didn't win. It was impenetrable, penetrated my head. But this is the way. Nothing reinforces this illusion of self-reliance like wealth and religiosity. And this guy had both. It's impossible. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, eternal life, as you know, I think, is a gift from God. It's impossible for you. Not enough wealth can buy it, and not enough good works can earn it. It's a gift that God has to grant because God God saves sinners. You come to him in faith, and he gives you gifts of faith and repentance, and you humble yourself before God, and he forgives you, and he saves you. Let me ask you again, do you have your money, or does your money have you? It's a warning here. And maybe you say this morning, hey, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not wealthy. That's for the next guy that you're thinking about in your mind right now. First of all, you're wrong. Statistically, you're wrong. If you came here in a car and you have a place to lay your head and you don't have a dirt floor in your house and you have more than the clothes on your back right now, y'all have changed clothes since last week, then you are wealthy. In the world economy, you are wealthy. And maybe you say, yeah, but wealth is relative, right? Like, I I live in this neighborhood, and somebody else is more wealthy than me. And that's true. It's absolutely true. But there's another side of this coin. We've kind of been talking with this rich young ruler about hoarding, keeping. He wouldn't give it up. The other side of that coin is what? It's coveting, right? It's the same coin. It's just a different side. How many of us, especially, I don't know about you, but my bills since January and inflation and gas prices have gone through the roof. And I'm, I'm sitting around going, can I still give to others? Can I still share? Can I give to my church? What do I have to cut out? And some of those practices are right and good, but what does that tend to make us do? It, it, it's, it tends to make us do this. It's just like if you're wealthy and you're hoarding your wealth coveting other side of the same coin it's an opposite but same problem these are heart issues and coveting and hoarding violate the commandment the first commandment love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind have no other idols before other things god's before me it can happen either way so you don't get off the hook this morning sorry So maybe you're asking, are we going to talk about generosity of wealth, or are we just going to talk about dangers? Well, here's the deal. we got to get through the danger first before we can get to opening up the storehouses and opening up our hands and not holding on to what we have, right? And so this is where we go next. See, I think God desires us to be free and generous. Look at, look at the middle of that in verse 22, and I think you see it. See, your second thought this morning is this, see, generosity with our wealth, if we can do that, if we can, by God's word and through his spirit, enable us to to see rightly and be generous 
with our wealth, it frees us to bless others. It frees us, and that's a great joy, not only to bless others, but to invest in something greater. Look at it, verse 22. This is a hard, this is a really hard saying here. Jesus heard these things. One thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will still have treasure in heaven and follow me. What is he saying? I have a friend who is a wealthy guy, and I think he read a David Platt book, which are great books, challenge us on what it means to share and be generous and be about mission, but it wrecked him. And he was out in Houston. His wife called me, and he was out in Houston on the street just giving away money because he's looking at this verse going, I'm supposed to sell everything. I'm wealthy. I'm supposed to sell everything. And I talked to him, and we worked it out. Why is Jesus saying this? Is he saying it to everyone? Sell all you have, give to the poor, redistribute wealth? Next chapter, Lazarus, excuse me, Zacchaeus, wealthy tax collector. Does he demand that Zacchaeus give all that he has to the poor? He does not. As a matter of fact, Zacchaeus makes that choice in that text. You see, all the way through the Gospels, wealthy people, the guy who carried Jesus' cross and took him to a cave, Joseph of Arimathea, what was he? He was wealthy. Jesus is saying this to this man, this man in this passage, because he knows his heart. He knows his heart is bent toward his stuff, and he's hoarding his stuff. And so this is a test of his character. Is he willing to give this up? Do you understand that? If you look through the New Testament, just if you want more information, if you look through the New Testament, you see all kinds of wealthy people who come to Jesus and none of the disciples or apostles tell them to sell all they have. Lydia in Acts chapter 16, Philemon, the wealthy owner who had the church in his home, most of the churches that met, they met in homes, not in schools, not in buildings, they met in homes and they were hosted by very much wealthy people. So Jesus isn't saying this for all time, for everyone. He's saying it to this man because of his heart issue. Do you see that? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we all do that. But it certainly means some things. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. It certainly means some things. We can't write off. Listen, if we want to follow Jesus, our life should be marked by generosity. And this is just a practical reality. Ask Solomon how hard it was, even with all the wealth, the most wealth in the world, because he had so much, because he had so many homes, because he had so many properties and so much land. You see in the book of Solomon his internal struggle because his life was not simplistic. And oftentimes, that's one of our problems as wealthy people, including all of us, is it's very difficult to be generous when our life isn't simpler. I'm not saying go buy a tiny house. Maybe you need to. I don't know. But the more you have, it's just a general principle. The more you have, the more you have to keep up with, the harder it is. And so I think there's some principles here of simplicity and also margin. It's kind of hard to have margin in your life, isn't it? The, the, the push of bills and gas and kid expenses. They eat a lot when they get old, right? And that's good. Have to be careful over here. But listen, man, it does mean to be followers of Jesus, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, 
We've got to consider how we can be generous as opposed to hoard or covet. Can I ask you the question, what is motivating you to work really hard and make a lot of money? What, what's the motivation? Sometimes the motivations are really good. Is it, but is it just to get more? To have something bigger? What's the motivation? Ephesians 4, 28, I think we have that text here. Ephesians 4, 28 says this. says to the thief, let the thief steal no longer. Let him work hard. So he's been lazy, so he's stealing. No, he needs to work hard. Why? Why should he work hard? Is it just financial responsibility? That's not a bad thing. But that's not what the text says. Is it just to have more? That's not what the text says either. What does the text say? It says you need to work hard so that you can do what? Buy nice things for myself. That's not bad. God says enjoy all things. To do what? To share. That you might share with others. Work hard so that you can share with others. Man, have you experienced that kind of freedom? The freedom to generously give and the joy of giving to others. It doesn't matter whether you're a billionaire or you're a high school kid making $50 a month because you're mowing the grass. You can be generous. And it's important to start being generous when you're young. Some of us say, well, I'll be generous when I have money. And later on, you're making a lot more money and you're st we're still not generous. This is a discipline, but it's a joy that we have. Are you a generous giver? Do you give to your church? Do you give to things like compassion? Do you give to people in need? Do you give to missionaries taking the gospel to other places in the world? Do you hold your things open? Or do you hold it with a clenched fist? And here's the deal. It hurts, <laughs> right? It stings a bit. The Bible talks about generous giving, the joy of generous giving, a cheerful giver, and it's sacrificial. The New Testament, New Testament doesn't really talk about tithes, it talks about offerings. And we kind of play that one way, but an offering is sacrificial. Think about an offering on the altar, it's sacrificial. It's over the top. It's not from the bottom, it's, the Bible talks about first fruit. So basically when you get your paycheck, it's talking about off the top, not off the bottom, because if I give off the bottom, I'm just giving God my scraps. And so are you practicing generous giving with what God has given you? A lot of good application. Perhaps it's a conversation that you need to have with the Lord. Perhaps it's a conversation that you need to have with your spouse to, how, to figure out what it looks like to generously give. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but it's kind of hard to see the, the tangible results of just giving to someone and serving someone or being generous with my money. My 401k, I can see the results. How's that working out for you right now? So I can't see it. I want you to, I want you to look at verse 28 through 30. Because God has a different way of doing math. And his math is a promise. Look at this. Your third thought is this. Generosity may temporarily sting, 
but it promises a serious ROI, a return on investment. Generous giving will sting, but it promises return on investment. Peter's confused because Jesus is hard saying in verse 28. You see it there? It's impossible. And basically he's saying, have, have we done enough? And look, this isn't about salvation. We've already unpacked that. He's focused. Jesus gives him encouragement and says, hey, he's already focused on the kingdom of God. He's left father and mother and family. This also doesn't mean, just so we're clear, that Peter has abandoned his wife or has aban- or that these guys have abandoned their families. There's family responsibility. That's not what he's saying, but there certainly is consequence and there certainly is a giving up and a sting of following Jesus. There just is. And so we come down and Jesus says this. Do you believe this is the question, right? Verse 30. You've done this. If you followed me, if you're doing these things for the sake of the kingdom, you will receive many, you catch these words, underline these words, many times, many times more in this time, that's now, and eternally in the future. And I think he's pointing to all the things that Peter listed that he's losing, right? That he's lost family and friends or he's not as close. Listen, God gives you the family of God in droves. Even if there's tension in your own family, this is meant to be a family. And it's a rich treasure if you tap into it. The community of faith, the family of God, I think that's the implication. And in the age to come, eternal life. So there's future reward, that the return on investment is secure. Listen, if I got in the lotus and went back to the future and I knew what the stocks were doing in 10 years from now or a year from now, and I came back and I told you what to invest in, is that insider trading? I don't know. Would you do it? It's a pr- you know what's coming. This is what Jesus is saying. Here's how his math works. There's more. There's more. And I know temporally, it's like this. I got to hold on to what I got. I need to hold on to it. And God is saying, if you just open up your arms and your hands and release it, it will come back to you. You got to trust that. <laughs> you got to have faith in that. That's, that's a faith thing to believe that. Now, Jesus here, I think, is describing a new kind of wealth, a new kind of wealth. It's not the old kind of wealth that's temporary that goes away, but an eternal wealth that will be there. And not only will it be there, there will be a massive return on your investment both in this life and in the life to come. This is what we talk about when we talk about an eternal perspective on life and stuff, right? Jesus says it a different way. Look at Jesus' math in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Maybe you know this passage, it's a great one. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. No, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, not heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the obvious question that comes out of that is this, what kind of treasure are we seeking? What kind of treasure are we seeking? So listen, if I'm summarizing today, there's a danger to wealth, but there's a freedom of generosity. And the big picture is God's math 
is that there's a great return on investment. Do you believe that? That's what it comes down to, right? In 1990, there was a guy named Danny Simpson. Danny took a 45 caliber pistol and he went into a bank in Canada to hold up this bank at gunpoint. Asked the teller for money, the teller gives him six grand. He runs out of the bank, pistol in hand. A couple hours later, he's caught, he's arrested, he's booked, and they take the pistol. In the time that he's between, he's booked, and he goes to prison, he was gonna serve a six-year term. The police noticed that this pistol was really old. And they did some research on the pistol. Come to find out, this pistol was a 1918 vintage Ross Rifle Company made in Canada pistol worth over 100K, y'all. This dude, Danny Boy, not so bright. Danny Boy robbed a bank for six grand when he had a pistol that was worth over 100K in his hands. Do you realize what you hold in Christ? Do you realize the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon us? And now he gives us an opportunity to invest as a generous God in his generous kingdom to bless others, to put the gospel in front of others, to invest eternally in what really, really matters. Do you see it? Do you see it that way? C.S. Lewis talked about it in these terms. Are you grappling for mud pies in the slum? Because you can't imagine God's offer of a holiday at the sea. Do you see the investment that you can make in the kingdom? Are you just holding on to what you have here? Are we too easily pleased? I know I am. I'm often too easily pleased. Am I fooling about with temporal ambitions when infinite joy is offered by God even right now? Yeah. If I could summarize this passage, if there was another passage that could just summarize this one, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 through 20, makes all the points we're making this morning. And I want to leave you with it, because I think it's a great way to codify what we're saying here today. Look at it, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 20. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Is that not the rich young ruler? Is that not you and me oftentimes? But on, but not on their hopes of the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. That's what he's saying in this passage. To be rich in what? Rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? I love this. They may take hold of that which is truly life. The takeaway today is simply this. Chase. If you're going to chase something, chase 
what really matters. Chase what matters because it changes the way you hold on to your stuff or temporal things. Chase what matters because it frees you to open your hands and be generous and to invest in God's kingdom that will last. Let me pray.